Today I was talking to Celia Riker about her latest book, Augusta, a book inspired by her grandmother and the events of her grandmother's life. Incredibly interesting. And there's so much love and affection that Celia has for her family. And just as a little teaser, Augusta was married at 13 when she left school. Find out more. I hope you enjoy this episode. As always, if you do, please like, subscribe, share, tell your friends and family. The podcast is the gift that keeps on giving. Hello, welcome to the David Watson podcast. Thank you for joining me. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. And thank you for having me. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. And um, the the book that we're going to talk about is, I think, is going to be absolutely fascinating, um, especially when you compare it to how we live today. To uh, how, and we'll we'll get into that. Um, but j- just for reference, could you tell people where you are? I'm based in the UK in Wilton. Uh, I'm I'm currently in Vermont. Um, it's been snowing. It has stopped. So uh, we don't have much snow this year, but people can still ski. That's good. That's good. We I, we don't have any snow here um, where I am in, in, in England, although a couple of weeks ago I was in Munich and uh, they had some very heavy snow. And instead of being able to fly home on the Monday morning, I didn't get a flight until Thursday night. We were snowed in. Well, so probably <laughs> much more similar to weather that you have than uh, than anything yes. that I ever experienced in the in England. But um, so, yeah, could you just give people an outline of the book you've written, Augusta? Augusta, Augusta is based on my grandmother's life story. And she was married off to the widowed father of one of her classmates at the age of 13 and then abandoned by her second husband in 19. That was in Arkansas. And then she was abandoned by her second husband in 1920s Detroit with four children to provide for. So her life was very complicated. And the grandmother I knew, I never heard any of this until I got older. Um, she lived in a cottage near a lake and i thought she lived a wonderfully simple life <laughs> until i got older and found out how complicated her story had been it's, it's, and the more i knew the more i wanted to know so i kept asking people questions i can imagine because the, the reason before st- we started uh recording the podcast i said i i i'm very interested because um my my grandmother is was from southern ireland um around the same age as your grandmother would have been and was one of 18 children and only 13 survived into adulthood um and it is there's a thing about because this happened uh, similar to your grandmother it's the depression that people don't understand what that level of poverty was like yes my mother did tell me that my grandmother arrived in Detroit wearing a feed sack for a dress. That's how poor she was. So the, their, the level of poverty is extreme. And then when I looked into what it was like near the turn of the 20th century uh, for f- Arkansas farmers and found out that that was really common for them to wear mm. feed and, and um, feed sacks for dresses and, and they shopped the feed sack for the kind of dress they wanted to make. 
And that's crazy, isn't it? When you, when you think of all, all the brands that come out today and how much people will spend on a dress or a vest or a T-shirt, and these guys were fighting over feed, uh, sacks of feed to make a dress. And flour. The flour sacks, I guess, were softer. And uh, because the flour company knew women were were using them for dresses, they created a little more attractive look. So that, that's just mind-boggling, isn't it? When you look at how we live today and you, you go back basically 100 years, just over 100 years, and yeah. there's there's a company out there who realises, who sell flour, basically, in large material-type sacks of some form of canvas, and they're like, if we can do this a certain way, it's more appealing to poor people because they need, when it's empty, they'll need to make a dress out of it. Oh. Yeah, it was it was a surprise to me. Uh, well, it wasn't a big surprise to me because my mother had told me that my grandmother arrived in Detroit wearing a, a, a sack like that as a dress. But uh, yeah, the th other things I, I discovered when I was doing my research, I thought, wow, their life was... There were very few choices in general, and the choices for women were even fewer. And then the choices that the poverty brought were even fewer. I mean, that you got, you grew up and you got married. That was it because the, your career choices would be for a poor person would be housekeeping and uh, a waitress, which is what she became. So what you said about choices and, and, and the two they had, and she became a waitress. What, what enabled that? I don't think it, Felt so much as being enabled as a necessity. She had to find a way to feed her children. And what what can I do? I have no clerical skills. I have no... And, and so she turned to her friend uh, who had eaten in a restaurant. And in my book, she hadn't. And she may well have not eaten in a restaurant before she became a waitress because they didn't do that. <clears throat> So, uh, yes, my mother told me about a Polish woman who helped my grandmother uh, when her first husband left. And um, and so I created this person that I'd never heard anymore except that. I knew she was from Poland. And so um, and I had her be a little more knowledgeable than Augusta because she'd been in Detroit longer. But uh but yes, to be moved from, in her case, Poland and or from Arkansas, it was almost as extreme a change. Um, there was no language change except that from in Arkansas they talked quite differently than they did in in Detroit. So, um, when you were um, so, no, please come on. Well, I, my grandmother did not. I don't recall her ever having a southern accent. And I'm assuming she deliberately got rid of that. Um, oh. And I did put that into the book because um, even when I was young, I heard people refer to people with Southern accents as dumb hillbillies. So um, I I did put her need to change that in the book. Okay. Because it's interesting, as I was reading through the bio, you, you talked about, Whilst trying to write about your grandmother, you, you then switched to the third person. Uh, yes. Well, I, I thought I'd write in the third person omniscient so I could tell you what she was thinking, 
what her children were experiencing and maybe employee uh, fellow employees. But when I sat down to write, I found myself writing it from her point of view. And, um, and oddly enough, there were times when I felt like she was sitting in the corner watching and, or that I was being directed by her. I'd sit down to write, I'm going to write this today. And when I finished, I'd look at it and go, I don't even know where that came from. So, um, yeah, I, there were times when I felt as if I were channeling my grandmother. I understand uh, that. And I, there's, I worry that she may not have approved of what I've done, but, uh, I'm hoping. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go, I'm going to go, uh, uh, play on that a little bit, if I may. Um, because I wrote a book once and I had the same experience. It felt like somebody was telling me what to write. How does that feel for you? Oh, it, it was almost a relief to think, yes, she does approve. And, and I'm, I'm writing what, this is what she wanted. I, I write one nightmare scene and I don't know, I didn't know where it came from. And I thought maybe that actually happened, but I don't know. And, um, so that's one of the times when I sat down to write something else. And, uh, that appeared on the screen when I was finished and thought, wow, I don't know. But, um, yes, it, it helped me be a little more relieved that she might not disapprove. I know double negatives, but I was worried that she might disapprove. And um, and the the image on the cover of the book is a picture of her. And I know she didn't like, I remember her not caring to have her picture taken. I remember her saying to my father, oh, you don't want a picture of this old horse face. Every time he took out his camera, she'd make faces. And uh, we have lots of pictures of her making faces. My mother said the only way to get a decent picture of her was to take a picture of her holding the baby, a, a baby. And I have a, I have a really nice picture of her holding my sister when she was very small. And um, <clears throat> so, but I thought, oh, I don't know if she'd approve of this. When my aunt gave me that picture, it's from a two and a half by three and a half inch daguerreotype. And my aunt, I already knew she'd been married off early, uh, but my aunt said this was taken on her wedding day. And she's wearing an eighth her eighth grade graduation dress. Oh, wow. And I thought, eek, ew. <laughs> I thought of myself in eighth grade. And oh, I, I can't even imagine. And not only being married off so young, but to be, being married off to someone old enough to be her father was just disturbing in every way to my young th thought processes. I thought, oh, who would do that? And I had a very hard time writing that scene where her parents inform her of their intentions. And I put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, when I finally sat down to write that scene where her parents inform her of what they're, what they think she should do, um, it just flowed. It, how, they didn't have many choices either. And so this man who has a farm, has a job, has a proven history of of providing for his family, it would like her to be his wife. What seems like a great choice. What other choices do you have? So uh, I made that part of the the story too. That her parents didn't feel like they had many choices either. Can we just discuss that a little bit? Because I think it's important that people understand that whilst by today's standards we can be shocked. At the idea of a 13 year old being married it wasn't uncommon 
it was in fact if you were going to look at the i'm sure your research showed you the same it was common it was common practice for yes effectively for a female once you went through puberty you, you you're an adult female and, and you're there to be married off because we can't take care of you and you have a responsibility yeah. to start your own family and that's that's one of the lines i put in there that i read uh that another person describing what was said to her we can't keep feeding you forever so um so that was part of it that 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 was her that was her lot in life and i don't remember her she didn't complain i i had relatives who complained a lot uh but i don't remember i was I, she died when i was quite young but she made a big impression on me and i don't recall her being angry about anything or talking about the past like it was bad but um but she did she appears in my first book uh in, which is a memoir about hiking the long trail she appears several times and when i'm sitting on top of a mountain looking at these snakes sunning themselves on a rock i remember that my grandmother when she realized i was afraid of snakes caught them and showed me how beautiful they were and uh when she found out i was afraid of the loon call on the lake she took me out on the lake to show me what the loons were and so she she introduced me to the forest and to nature and um so she shows up in that book several times um and she passed away when i was barely six but i do have very vivid memories of walking in the woods with her and um and of her showing me how beautiful snakes were so she did make an impression <laughs> it's interesting because you you used the phrase she seemed to accept that was her lot in life. And yes. When, whenever I've spoken to... But my, my nan was... I was about 13, 14 when my nan died. And um, the, the way that... I was fortunate in the sense I'd gotten a little bit older. I'd gone back to Ireland with her a few times and stuff. So, you know, I, I knew her brothers and sisters well and, and things like that. And you had... By the time you get to sort of like your teen years, you've you've known them long enough to sort of ask questions. Um, not the same way that I would today, but you know, they all had this. Well, that's the that's the way the dice were rolled. That is your lot in life. Yes. Yes, and she she accepted that. I thought her life was wonderfully simple. She lived in a cottage that um, you had to pump the water at the kitchen sink. And I thought that was so exciting. And uh, she did have an indoor toilet, but you had to pump the bucket full at the sink and then pour it to, to flush, um, which I thought was just wonderful. And looking back, it, her life, her, her that little cottage was so simple because that may have been all she could afford. But um, it it seemed wonderful to me and she's treated it like this is our home and um and she could cook on a she cooked on a little camp stove yeah. and she could cook a meal and um i do i don't know if i remember this or i remember being told so many times about this that she would fix a meal and on at least one occasion she pre pushed herself back from the table and said I don't know who's doing the dishes, but I cooked this dinner and I'm going fishing. <laughs> and she did love to fish. 
<laughs> That's brilliant. Um, what happened that you decided to write the book? Oh, good grief. I thought about this for a very long time. When I began to write this book, I found the notes that I had written 35 years earlier about how did I find them when I can't find my shoes half the time. But I found those notes and um, <clears throat> and I looked through the list of people I had to interview and they had all passed away. And so when I began talking to some of my uh, my grandmother's other grandchildren, I received wildly conflicting stories. I mean, wildly conflicting stories. And I thought, I'm just going to write the stories I remember hearing and the way I thought of these stories as they were told to me. So that's that's how I wrote the book. Because when I tried to get right down to the very, very facts of the situation, again, I got I received wildly conflicting stories. And even in my early notes, my father and his sister could not agree on what their mother's first husband's name had been. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's fairly firsthand, and they couldn't remember his name. Um, <clears throat> I did find out that my aunt was correct, but, um, but I find it interesting that, that trying to remember these things, uh, um, my brother, sister, and I, we can't agree on the m- simple memories. Like uh, our father did get run over by a, truck when he was very young and I was talking to my my siblings and I said you know he was hit by a garbage truck and my sister said oh no he was hit by a trolley car and my brother said no he was hit by a Wonder Bread truck and I mean these are all stories that we think we heard and so um that's why this is a novel and not a biography (laughs) I, I kept to the facts as closely as I could and and the stories that I remember being told. And some of it is how they affected me at that time, what I thought. For instance, in the opening scene, when she's walking past the home of the family who adopted her youngest daughter, um, my mother told me that story many times. I always imagined it happening in, happening in the fall. And I imagined them living on a corner lot because I didn't want to think of my grandmother walking through the alley to see her daughter in someone else's yard. But uh, my mother told me that story many times and said that when she realized that Lottie recognized her as that woman who walked by so often, she determined she could never go back again, and she didn't. (laughs) So, yeah, these are... even as a child, I knew that was hard. But that that's, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to, I need a second on this, because for, for, while you were telling, telling me this, I'm thinking about how difficult it must be to just give up a child. Okay, yeah. and, and we can talk about the reasons that she had to do that. And then I'm trying to take on board, she knows where the child is and has to walk past the child. So we'll see see her own daughter growing up, and then yes, then that last bit you mentioned, she realizes the child recognizes as this woman who walks past. So she then has to make the decision never to let her see her again. Right, and 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 that's just like there's there's almost three levels of heartbreak. 
Exactly. And I was a child when I was told the, this story the first time, and I compared that to my puppy. And I thought, how would I feel if I had to give my puppy away? And I mean, this is a puppy. And and walk past the neighbor's yard and see my puppy over there. And I thought, oh, so as a child, that's that's how it hit me. It's a good connection for a child to make. That, that you love and give it away. Yeah. Yes. That's very insightful for a child. Well, the puppy was sitting right there when I heard the story. <laughs> but uh, yes, I, I I knew that that, that was huge. And uh, my mother did tell that story fairly often. And Augusta was my father's mother. And my mother is the one who told me most of the stories about her because my mother adored her mother-in-law. She thought yeah. she was fabulous. And... Um, and my father didn't talk about these things much. When I got older and asked him specific questions, um, he would he would um, say he didn't remember, which he probably didn't. Or or um, and then my mother would fill in where where he had left off. So, um, but I did get a lot of of wonderful stories and some great memories. Even though she was she passed away when I was quite young. Do you know what happened to the girl? To pardon me? Do you know what happened to the girl after she was adopted? Yes, I I, I can't tell you how, but that is uh, the story does end well. Okay. Um, and I yeah, it does end well. It does end up with the family being united, and I won't tell you no. how how that happened. But and there were conflicting stories about how that happened too. So. <laughs> But uh, yes, I I grew up with three grandmothers. Okay, one that was much older. Okay, okay. So, <clears throat> what what do you know about your grandmother before she got married? Pardon me. What do you know about your grandmother, or what were you able to find out about your grandmother before she got married? But before she was first. Before she got married, I only heard that she was on a farm in Arkansas, and um. And I assumed it was a very poor farm since she was wearing a feed sack as a dress. And uh, when I did the research and found out what that would have been like at the turn of the 20th century, I was stunned. And um, and the fact that she finished eighth grade was kind of a big deal because in many cases, children didn't go that far in school. If they were old enough to work at, at home, they took them out of school. And... Um, the fact that she got an eighth grade education was um, was something for that time. And even in Detroit in the 1920s, it was common for, for young people's educations to end in the eighth grade. You finished eighth grade, you got a little diploma, you were, you were a graduate. I think it's hard for people to comprehend. And, and, it's, and I'm trying to help sort of build the picture towards we, people don't, don't think people really, a lot of people don't understand because it's called the Great Depression. The problem with that is the word great in front of it is misunderstood. Yes. <laughs> and when they say depression, they think, oh, I, 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 was, I felt depressed yesterday. And yes. the context is lost on people in today's world, of what the Great Depression yes. actually was. And people have tried to compare it to recessions in the modern world. But it 
the, the reason one financially it, it doesn't apply to it was largely affected America um, or wealthy people in other countries that invested in America but it, it's not like it's spread around the world and the other thing being that people often don't understand is when the, the depression hit America in in the 20s there, there was no no support nobody was coming to rescue you so if you couldn't no. figure it out you died hungry in a ditch somewhere yeah and and i'm assuming that i don't know what made them move to detroit but i did some research into what brought most of the people north to detroit and it was work they had to they had to find a job they had to pay to feed their their families and and i did some research into what tenement life was like and oh my goodness <laughs> that was no easy give us easy, a description uh, way of, pardon give us a description of tenement life well most of them the the research i did most of them were two rooms and i kept seeing when i was looking at pictures of them there was a two there were two rooms and between the two rooms was a door, and next to that door was a window. And I kept trying to figure out why that was. And there had been a law passed that said that that these tenements building, these tenement apartments had to have windows. So instead of putting an outside window, they put the window between the two rooms. And um, so that's why I saw so many – there's a window and a door between two rooms within the apartment – and um, and then I found out they passed another law that said you have to have at least one window opening to the exterior of the building. And they called them tuberculosis windows because that was supposed to keep you from getting tuberculosis. And um, so, yeah, it, it was a rough life. And I saw that they had wood stoves and, and um, I couldn't figure out why. I kept seeing tubs sitting on top of steps. You know, it was sitting on uh, an elevator, and I thought, how do you even get in a tub when it's that high? They Because they hand-washed everything, and that was the only tub they had, they raised it so the women could use them to, to wash clothes. Yeah. And I thought, oh, wow. So I was seeing these images as I was going through all this research and thinking, why would they do that? And, and uh it took me a while to find the answers to why there were extra windows and why they had the tubs up on elevated um, steps. But uh, yeah, they had to make make do with what they had. And it's interesting, so isn't just, it? Because the way you just described the building. So originally they had no windows, external windows at all. And a law was no. passed, so they had an internal window, which is of absolutely no use to anybody. And exactly. then eventually, because of tuberculosis, which people take for granted now, you, you just go to hospital and get some antibiotics, They, you have to have at least one external window. And the thing, the thing that resonates with me a lot is anybody that lived like that, who had a roof over their head, food on the table, and had been paid that week, would consider their life blessed. Yeah. And yeah, and I found out that a waitress at that time made nine dollars, eight or nine dollars a week. And then I had to figure out how much eggs cost and sugar cost and 
flower costs. And I thought, that's not a lot of money, <laughs> even even when the prices were so very low. Um, if you made $9 a week and a dozen eggs cost 30 cents, it's that's a big part of your... <laughs> it is. It is. A eggs were expensive. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, everyone's, oh yeah, it was much cheaper back then. Yeah, but not not compared to wages, it wasn't. You know, like you say, thirty cents, and you're only earning eight nine dollars. That doesn't go far. No. How much was rent every week? I don't. I didn't get much on what rent was, um, and so I didn't even address it. I just, and that is. Um, uh, I kept looking and trying to find out, but I, I couldn't. I know it costs a quarter to ride the bus if you went from one side of the city to the other. So, again, these are big expenses when you make eight dollars a week. They are, they are. And 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 do you know at all how how many hours she had to work for that eight dollars? I don't know. I didn't find any information about that. I didn't look as closely at that. I don't know how many hours she had to work for that. I bet. I, I, I tell you what. I bet it wasn't a 35-hour week. Yeah. <laughs> I would bet not. Do, do you have any idea about how where she worked? Where she lived in the, within the city? Yeah, yeah, where she lived and where she worked. You know, do you know the restaurants or anything I like that? I don't know. I never got any specific information about that. And by the time I was writing the book, anyone who may have had that information um, – had passed away. I do know that she worked in a restaurant that was near a police precinct and she had a lot of police officers come in and out of the uh, restaurant. And I found those characters fun to write that I could yeah. write about these two police officers that come in a lot and, and them being there when, when her son is injured and helping her, you know, helping get him to the hospital and, um, yeah, I, I did have a lot of stories like that. No specifics, so I had to make up names. And, um, but but I found those characters fun to write. Imagine. How, how did you start building up these characters? I don't know. I just assumed that there'd be an Irish cop and an Italian cop, and I had them call one another the... The, the names they would have called one another at the time in Mick and WAP and, you know, the terms that were commonly used at the time. And, uh, and so I, I enjoyed that too, that I could, I could do a little research into what, what the Italian part of town was like and, and, um, what Bricktown was like and that sort of thing. So, um, but I had to, that was, that's where I, I went completely fictional when I could do the exchanges between the officers in the restaurant and the fact that they were helping her out and thought her husband was a no good and she was better off without him and that sort of thing. But that doesn't help when you've got to pay bills. So, no, it doesn't. So what was the, if we look at it from the, you were writing the book from, your, your your grandmother's point of view and but you also kind of felt a channeling as if she was telling you the story to write correct 
what were the emotions that you were feeling? Oh, good grief. Um, when I went into how little money she had to feed her family, I, I wondered how she would have felt if, you know, there was, there were, was talk of taking her children away from the home and putting them in care. And, and I did create those characters also. And, um, and she was being watched a lot so that they'd make sure that, and that is one of the reasons for adopting out the youngest daughter to, because in, in my story, they didn't even know she had four. They thought she only had three. <laughs> so, um, so she has to find a way to make her life, make it possible for her to feed her, her three children and the adoptive family. I never heard what the financial arrangement was, but I was told many times that there was a financial arrangement of some sort. And I never heard what it was. And again, when I talked to her grand, her other grandchildren, there were wildly conflicting stories. And um, one was that they were paying for a house, that they were paying the, um, the mortgage on a home, okay. which would have given her then a piece of property, which yeah. would have made it possible for her to leave the city and go to that cottage. And um, so, uh, but I don't know. It's hard to imagine having to make those difficult decisions to, to survive because we, you know, by and large, thanks to um, social media, Disney and Hollywood, we like to think of the world as being romantic, whereas n nature doesn't care what your feelings are about something. And and there's a point where you have to, regardless of how your heart may be getting ripped out, you know, and how you make that piece of your soul, he had to make a, a black and white decision of this is how we survive moving forward. Right. And, and she not only survived uh, in a, in a sense, she, th she had, she thrived uh, her, she raised three children that went on and married and had children. And, and um, sometimes I wonder how my father learned how to be such a good father since he never saw that in, in his life, but uh, um, I don't know how she made it. She made my father feel like this little toy that you have, and it's the only toy that you have, is a perfectly wonderful toy, and you should be glad to have this perfectly wonderful toy, even though that's it. That's your toy. <laughs> yeah, I have that toy. He gave that to me. He said, this for many years was the only toy I had. And it's a little metal lion bank. And he said, I used to march it around and play with it. And he said, this this was my toy. So. Uh, There's a lesson in that. And again, never thinking that I didn't have toys the way the other children did. But that that was, he had, he had that special toy. And he kept it until... Um, Late in his life, he gave it to me. Was there any, as you're talking about this, I mean, you can't see what I can see. So there's a way your, your face lit up as you were talking about your father. When you were 
discovering more about your grandmother and effectively how your father was raised. Did, did that give you a different reflection on it? Um, a different reflection. I don't know that it was different. It, it just added a little more dimension to it, but it was, it was all part of the same story. And, um, I don't know that it made a big difference. It just added to the story that I already had in my mind. Um, and I know my father looked for his father when he was a young adult and never found any evidence of him beyond Detroit. And when my brothers were young adults, they decided they'd find him. We've got computers. We can do this. And they could find no evidence of him beyond Detroit. And uh, my oldest brother said one day, that son of a gun may have just ended up in the Detroit River because he wasn't a very nice man. Yeah. <laughs> Some, you know, and back then it could have happened and they never would have identified a body that they found down river somewhere, but, no reason um, to. but they couldn't find any evidence of him beyond, beyond Detroit when he just walked away. Okay. It's interesting, isn't it? I, I always find it fascinating that, that the way you talk about your father and, and then the way you're talking about your grandmother is all of the hardship that they had, their capacity to love is it, it, just tenfold. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah. My, my grandmother taught me not to be afraid of snakes. Um, and I do remember one time when I did something I wasn't supposed to do, I went across that street that I'm not allowed to cross and came back with a snake. <laughs> and, and, um, <laughs> and it was, it was a copperhead. And when I lied and told her that I caught it by the lake, I got in big trouble and I was sent to her room to wait for punishment. And I remember sitting in there and over here is a glowing crucifix and over here is a glowing Donald Duck for her okay. grandchildren. Yeah. So there was a framed picture of Donald Duck that, glue, that glowed in the dark and this other, and I'm sitting there going, I don't know which is worse. <laughs> But, uh, and I remember that, but I don't remember what the punishment was. I remember waiting for the punishment, but I don't remember the punishment at all. But I do remember waiting. And I thought, I'm sure that was an effective. Uh, well, you still remember it. So. I remember waiting, yes. <laughs> so, so what happened? What happened? So she moved to Detroit, had a, got a job as a waitress. What happens next? Um, I, she was a waitress until I'm not sure why she retired, but, um, she was no longer working in her sixties, which would have been uncommon. Then I assumed there was probably something wrong that I didn't know about that kept her from working. Okay. But I don't, I don't know what that was. And I never heard what it was. So what, how, how was any of this? shaped your life if it has at all how has it affected my life yeah or, or shaped it um, what are the lessons that you know i do um she made me appreciate nature i love walking in the woods um which is what walking home was about and um and she i think knowing how difficult her life had been makes me more aware of other people's who are struggling 
and that we may not know are even struggling because I didn't know she had been through all of that. I had no indications of that. And, uh, and my father was a happy guy. I mean, and I know that when, when my parents got married, he used to pose as a boy scout. I mean, they didn't have any money. The depression was still going on. And, um, and he would go to homes and claim to be a boy scout and tell them the boy scouts are having a fundraiser. Can we pick some of your flowers from your gardens to sell them? And the women would go and pick flowers for him because they didn't want him messing around in their gardens. And then he'd pretend to be a boy scout on the corner and sell, um, the flowers so that he could feed his family. He had a young son and, and he was suffering from dementia in his older years. And I went to see him one time and he was working with a therapist, uh, um, therapist there, a doctor there. And, uh, and he was talking to my father and he said, so how many children do you have, bud? And he said, I have two boys. And I looked at the doctor and, and he looked at my dad and he said, what year is it? And he said, 1943. And I, I looked at the doctor and I said, yes, he does have two boys in 1943. I said, are you planning to have more children? And he said, are you kidding? I can barely feed the two I've got. I said, surprise, you're going to have three more. So, <laughs> but, you, uh, so sorry, so you won a five. Yeah. And, um, And we, he made sure that we had everything we ever needed. And I, we were not poor, uh, but, um, but we were middle class, maybe lower middle class, but, um, we had, we never felt that way. Yeah. We, you know, he would find a way to get things for us. Yeah. You know, that if, if, cause we had horses when we were young and that, that's an expensive, Thing. And he worked out a way to get this horse that wasn't very expensive and keep it at this place in exchange for other things that he did for this man so that my sister and I could go and ride this horse and um, that we couldn't afford. But, um, but he found a way to make it work by trading things with other people. Well, there was probably resilience that he learned growing up. Yes. I'd imagine, as you say that, it occurred to me, and I could be very wrong, that one of the ways that you would have had to survive when there just isn't any money, there isn't any work, is you need to be useful enough to people that people are looking out for you. Yeah, and and to learn how to barter and, and negotiate, and oh, you need that, and I need this, and we could... I, I do know that there was a time when uh, my grandparents would run a line from the electric pole to the house yeah, and at night and then unhook it in the daytime so nobody knew they were stealing electricity. <laughs> that was during the Depression, yes. Yeah. Because but the, the, there would have been, you, you know, you'd have to be clever and you'd have to be resourceful like that because and but when bartering you'd have to be able to see the value of what somebody you know there's that sales pitch that 
you know, if you're going to sell something to somebody, you have to understand why it's valuable to them. Because if they're not in the market for it, you, the best sales pitch in the world isn't going to work. So being able to see what somebody needed and your value to provide that, that, that takes, there's a sort of, there's almost an, an instinct that has to be honed and sharpened to be able right. to pivot in any of, moment. I think that's part of what made my father a good salesman. And that is what he was. He was a car salesman. And I remember one time going to pick him up. My car was out and I was using his to pick him up at work. It's nine o'clock at night. It's time to close up. And there's a couple there and they're just talking and talking and talking about their son. And he's listening and asking them and da da da, and we go on and on. And when we finally got in the car, and I said they didn't even buy, they didn't buy anything. He said they'll be back. And the next night, I went to pick him up, and those two people were there again talking about their son, but they were signing the paperwork. And they and we got in the car, and I said, so they came back and bought a car. And he said yes, and they bought one for the, they bought a used car for their son as well. And so that's how my father was a salesman. He really liked people and he'd listen to their stories. And, and he probably learned that, like you said, out of necessity, he had to figure out what, what people wanted or what, how, how to sell some. So he, yeah, he was, he was fairly good at that. And I think part of it was liking people. Yeah. Yeah. I think it helps. I think it helps. Yeah. It's very difficult to listen to people if you don't actually like people to start with yeah <laughs> and um and i think that's part of what uh allowed my grandmother to survive as well as she did was getting along with people to, and i did write in some of the friends she made and some of the people she worked with that uh um i didn't hear any real stories with names attached but I did know that she had people she worked with that she was close to. And so I was able to fictionalize them a bit. Um, so that I think that caring about other people was maybe part of what he learned from her. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Going off in a different direction altogether. Is the, am I correct? This is your second book. Yes. For people listening who are just interested in the process of writing a book, where where did it start for you? Because you mentioned the notes that you had from thirty five years ago. Yeah. Um, it began with me writing that first scene that I've already told you about. It's the opening scene in the book. I thought it was going to end up later in the book about her walking by the home of the family that adopted her, her daughter. And the publisher decided that should be the prologue. That should get the reader there. And so it's an easy story for me to tell you because the reader's going to get that in the first, in the first chapter. Um, but the, what started the writing, uh, the notes from way back, um, I had no idea how to write a book. I, I did get myself in with a good writer's group, which was helpful. And throughout, even though I was giving riding lessons and training horses, that's what I did for a living. Um, I took classes at local universities and writing seminars and stuff. 
because I thought someday I'm going to write a book. And, um, and it wasn't until my 15th, 59th birthday that I thought you better do some of these things that you say you're going to do. And one of them was hiking the long trail, which I did. And then I wrote a book about that. And the book that was waiting was Augusta. And I went back and found those notes and, uh, and getting with a, taking the classes and attending the seminars and learning how the writing process works. Um, and, and getting in with a writing group that is very helpful because what we do is we meet uh, once a week and I'll put a scene out there and they'll read it and say, you know, this doesn't make any sense or I really like this part, but, and, and then I'll do the same for them. And I learn almost as much about the process from what they're doing, even though that's science fiction and this is a memoir and this is a, a, a novel. Um, the writing process is, is very similar. And so, uh, yeah, getting with the right people and, uh, one of the things I belong to the League of Vermont Writers, and they are constantly reading books about craft. They're yeah. constantly working on their craft, not just writing, but finding out what works for other writers. And so that's been very helpful. What, what is and being the long around other people to write it helps. Just, just to clarify, what is the long trail? Pardon me? What is the long trail? You just broke up. So, the long trail is um, is the original long distance hiking trail in the United States. It's from it goes from the Massachusetts border of Vermont along the Green Mountains to Canada. So you're walking across the the long, length of the state of Vermont in the mountains. It's about five hundred miles. Uh, yeah, about five hundred miles. How long does that or take you? It took me, <laughs> it takes, it, it, if you stay on the trail, it should take about a month. It took me seven years because I, we hiked in sections. I was hiking with a friend and we'd go out and we'd do as much as we could do in this period of time. And then we'd come back and do that. And then when she couldn't do it, I tried some by myself. And there are some disasters in the book about that. Um, but largely the book is about what I think about when I slow down to the speed of my legs for days on end, because you don't have the distractions of other people or um, radio, television, traffic was amazing. When The first time I drove a car after I'd been on the trail for just seven days, I was stunned by how fast everyone was going. And uh, I have been known to I have been called an aggressive driver, but when I found cars piling up behind me, I didn't speed up. I pulled over because I had slowed down that much in seven days of just not being in that faster mode. Slowed down to the speed of my legs. That's a book. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Life that, that, at the speed of your legs. <laughs> yeah, that, that should be a, a title of a book itself. Yeah. That's a really nice phrase, that is, slow down to the speed of my legs. Thank you. I, I use that all the time because that's what it felt like. I just, when that's how this top speed you're going all day long, and I didn't, I didn't hike as fast as some people. So I was even slower than most. But, um, 
Yeah, you think differently. You, you remember things. I remembered this thing about my grandmother. And oddly enough, I when there were some ladders we had to go down in the northern part of the state where it was getting more and more rough. And um, I thought of a cousin I hadn't seen in years. And a time that we were in a barn way back by the railroad track where we weren't supposed to be. Uh, and we had gone up into a hayloft to see what we could find. And there was nothing there but moldy hay. But um, each time I came down a ladder, I thought of her at the bottom of that ladder in that barn 60 years ago. <laughs> so, yeah, and it, it's that sort of thing where you think about people and things that are are important and at yeah. a different level. There's something wonderful about when you start hiking, when you've got when you're going from point to point, because the the only thing you can do is keep putting one foot in front of the other till you get there. And if it takes six hours, it takes six hours. If it takes ten hours, it takes ten hours. And you have to sort of you you have to almost reside to the fact of there's no way to speed this up. No. One of the things I discovered early on is we're hiking in the mountains and I'd look up and I'd think, oh, if we, if we go that way, we won't, it won't take as long as if we, if we end up going that way. And I learned to just look at the highest, darkest point and think that's where we're going. We're never going around the summit. We're always going to the summit. And um, it made it a little easier because I kept thinking, oh, we didn't go that way. We're going this way. But uh yeah, getting to the summit is, um, after the hike, my husband was talking to the uh, Sandy, the woman who hiked with me, and I, and he said, what was the hardest part? And I said, we said, oh, getting to the summits, just the rock. And he said, what was the best part? And he said, being at the summit. <laughs> and some of it may have been that it was hard, so hard to get there that you had to appreciate it. But the first time I was on a mountaintop where I had a 360, I felt... I almost fell down. I felt as if I were falling off of the mountain. And it was a big area. There was nothing. There was no fear of falling. But I ended up on the ground clinging to the rock like I think. And, and it took me a while to just get settled down because I'd never been that far up in that open. Yeah. And look around and go, whoa, I can't even stand up up here. But, yes, it was. The summits were amazing. Okay. Just if you if you could somehow magically see your grandmother today, where would you take her? Where would I take her? Yeah, what would you show? What would a, I show a, her? This girl who was married at thirteen. Where, where would you like to take I her? I, it just popped into my head, and I, my parents are both gone. I would show her the house where her son raised his kids. Because nice. it was just a lovely colonial home in a two-story home in a nice neighborhood in a really nice little town. And I think that would have, I yeah, why did I think of that? But yeah, it would be to show her where Buddy raised his kids. That's nice. That's nice. And I've got one last question, which, again, is very off the cuff, but along the same lines. If you could go any place in history, any place in time, be anywhere, where would you go? When? And 
Um, what vehicle would you drive and what music would you be listening to? If I could go anywhere in time, where would I go? I'm not even certain of that. That that would that's gonna haunt me. That question's going on. Um I would I would like to see my parents again. And I think I would like to go back to that house in the first car I ever owned. And um what music would I be listening to? Probably Peter, Paul, and Mary. I'd like them. But yeah, I think I would, the, the first car I, I bought was my car, and uh, and I bought it myself with my money I made at my work at my job, and and finding out that I could actually make a living training horses and teaching horseback riding. Wow! What was the car? It was a um, it was a sh it was a Malibu, Chevy Malibu. Malibu Super Sport had a little SS on the side, which made it far more valuable to me. But Very yeah, nice it was a Malibu Super Sport. And, uh, and it was blue. That's lovely. And it was mine. <laughs> yeah. And that's like you say, that's the important part because that's mine. I've paid for it and I did this off my own back. Yeah. Did you buy it off your dad? No, he was not selling cars at the time. Um, and I was shocked when I went and talked to the salesman. And um, he didn't seem to care about me that much. And I thought, that's not the way my dad would have done it. But um, I did find over the years that we did seek out salesmen that did. My husband and I... Um, We'd follow a salesman, and my father had people follow him when he went from selling Fords to Pontiacs um, because this guy cared. And like we went in one time, we both drove trucks because he's a veterinarian and I train horses. And um, we decided that we should have a car to get into for going somewhere nice. We've we've come a long way here. We can get a car. And we went there and we looked at what we could afford and decided we didn't want what we could afford. But he listened to us. And he found a Thunderbird. And I do appreciate nice cars because my father and brothers were both into cars. And um, he found a Thunderbird in our price range. And I said, oh, yeah, it's in Ohio. And, he's, and he said, I said, don't, don't bring that up. We, we, we don't know if we want it. And he said, it's already here. Come in and look at it. Now, there's a salesman who listened to us listened to what we wanted to spend, listened to what we liked and found it for us. Yeah. And we, we loved that car. That's, and, that's, so, yeah. and, and that's the important thing, isn't it? It's, it comes back to yeah. that listening again. Listening, yes. Being interested in people and listening. And I thoroughly enjoyed uh, listening to you. And I just wanted to say it's, it's really nice to listen to somebody who loves their family so much they're hard not to love yeah, there were sure. times when they made it hard even harder but yeah uh yeah it's yeah we do we do actually kind of like one another most of the time it, it comes across as a great deal of affection and it was it's been a, a genuine pleasure to listen to you thank you well thank you